Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In Amsterdam, I dreamt I saw my mother again. Same beautiful pale blue eyes. When I lost her, I lost sight of any landmark that might have led me someplace happier. You're the boy, are you? The boy whose mother was killed. Today we'll be talking with Roger Deakins, one of Hollywood's most respected cinematographers who we visited here in Los Angeles to talk about his work on The Goldfinch. Director John Crowley's drama is based on the 2013 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name that follows protagonist Theo, who survived a terrorist attack at New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art when he was 13. Oakes Fegley plays the young Theo, and Ansel Elgort plays the character as an adult. The movie was made on sets and on locations, largely in New York. Deakins famously won an Oscar for Blade Runner 2049 after 13 previous nominations for films including The Shawshank Redemption, The Man Who Wasn't There, No Country for Old Men, Fargo, and Skyfall. And I'm thrilled that he's joining us today. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Roger, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure, yeah. So to start, what attracted you to the material? Had you already read the novel? No, I hadn't, actually. I can't remember. It was so long ago, but it was sometime while we were actually in Budapest doing Blade Runner. I think my agent mentioned it to James and sent us a copy of the novel, not the script. And, uh, you know, I was immediately kind of drawn by it, yeah. And then this was your first time working with director John Crowley. Yeah. Uh, what did you talk about when you first met? Um, when I first met, it was nothing specific like that. We just sort of talked in general about this, that, and the other. You know, you tend to get to know somebody, really, not to talk in specifics. I had seen his one of his first films, Boy A, was really impressed by that, and obviously Brooklyn. Um, so we talked about that and different approaches and things we've each done, you know, in our kind of lives, really. So, yeah, we didn't, not initially, we didn't really talk that much about Goldfinch, not in terms of you know, in the photography of it. 
Um, that's sort of something that just kind of develops as you go along, really. Did in that case, anyway. And what was he like to work with? Oh, just perfect, great, wonderful, lovely guy. Really committed to the project and committed to his own version of it, which is really nice. You know, had a very distinct kind of idea what he wanted out of it, you know, but it wasn't dogmatic. And, and you know, it was great. It was great collaboration, you know. It was great to and forth, you know. Yeah, a really nice guy. I had a really good time. Well, what would you sum up the creative brief that the two of you went for? There's rarely anything specific like that when you're talking with a director and talking through a script. It's something that sort of develops as you... You know, I like to go through a script with a director and talk about different scenes and the different kind of feel of each scene, um, what each scene means more than actually what it should visually look like because then that sort of develops out of that conversation. And... Um, then you gradually look at locations and, you know, it's something that evolves, really. Um, you shot on location in New York and Amsterdam. New York, Amsterdam and in uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque standing in for um, Las Vegas, yeah. Okay, and then you also did some work on stages as well. A little bit in a warehouse up in Yonkers, yeah. Not really a proper stage, but it was fine for what we needed. Well, let's start with New York. When you were shooting uh, the New York scenes, what was the feel you wanted to give both when Theo was living on the Upper East Side and then the time he spent in the antique store? I mean, we wanted a feeling of this sort of darkness of this old New York apartment, you know, that kind of feeling of fading wealth, I suppose, is what I was looking at anyway. And the antique store wanted to become somewhere that was more inviting to Theo, you know, became something kind of more a warm and something more where he felt safe really you know it's what was more about specific scenes really you know when when his father turns up in the apartment you know they wanted to feel a little bit kind of threatening so there's certain ways we tried to achieve that in the shots you know what you saw and what you didn't see you know when theo first goes to the apartment for instance he's taken there by the welfare social services or whatever Apart from the conversation, we had him sitting in the passageway, you know, so he's listening to the conversation off, you know, so we tried to keep it about Theo and keep quite a lot of it in his perspective. So it wasn't always like showing everything, you know, it was kind of subtle things like that, really. Could you elaborate on your approach to the lighting? Again, for the New York scenes. Well, the interesting thing about choice of locations is that, um, as I say, the kind of look of it kind of, evolves as you as you think about the location and look at the practical issues of doing it so we looked at locations which were kind of real apartments on whatever it was meant to be fifth avenue or park lane i can't remember um you know but they were always like fourth or fifth floor on those tiny elevators and it's like a nonsense you're not going to shoot there for sort of four or five weeks and get a full day's work it's just not going to happen and then we should, the time of year we're shooting at means the sort of daylight time is limited. So you know you're going to have to light it. So going from actually using a real location, we went in, in the real apartment location, we went and we, we shot it in a house upstate uh, near Rye. And it was mostly ground floor or second floor, you know. And, you know, KK designer made it look like an apartment. And that way I had total control over the lighting, you know, and wanted a kind of feeling of the sort of soft light, wanted a feeling that was quite down inside, you know, it wasn't kind of an attractive place. It was kind of a little 
in a way, a little threatening, I suppose. So that gave us control over that location, but we couldn't see outside the windows. And one of the, one of the first things was, oh, surely we want to see outside the windows. But really you don't, because a lot of the time the curtains are almost closed. So there's like just slivers of light getting into the place, you know. Whereas some of the other locations, which initially KK and production have thought about doing it on a set, when I came on board and talked to it with John, we said, no, we should do this on location, like the Amsterdam hotel room, for instance, originally was going to be a set shot in New York with a backing. And we said, well, no, surely it's so important that we have a window and we have a view and you see Amsterdam and it's really then, it's about these moments with Theo. There's not much dialogue, it's just about him and it's a much more internal thing, but that made it more important. You, you felt the view and you felt the change in light, you felt the daylight going, the night coming, the snow falling. So it's interesting how, you know, as you gradually develop, how are you going to shoot something, things change. Like, well, like I say, one goes from a location to a stage set and the other goes the other way. And then the scene in the antique store. Was the antique store a set or is that a location? Well, that was a location, yeah. Again, that sort of was interesting because it changed from being something that was written as and the first location we all looked at was a sort of semi-basement kind of idea where you go downstairs, you know, a sort of exterior well going downstairs to this antique store, which was below the pavement level. But that seemed very restrictive to me. And I, I really felt I wanted the kind of feeling for the scenes when you're in the antique store of actually looking out the window and seeing the street and be able to see Theo standing on the street from inside the antique store when he first arrives and, and things like that. So that sort of changed around and it was just funny one day we were driving around in, in the van as you do as a group location scouting and I said you know about the antique store we were passing a restaurant that I'd walked by like the day before or the weekend before or something I said has anybody thought about that restaurant and KK said I think it was KK said yeah we looked at that one time it's maybe it's possible but we dismissed it and I said, should we look at it again? Because I thought it was really good. So we went back and looked at that. I don't know if he had lunch here or something and just actually sort of took it in. And that's how we chose that place, turned the restaurant into an antique store. Yeah. And how did you light that location? I didn't really light it. I mean, well, I lit it, but I lit it with the practicals that were part of the okay. interior of the store. That whole location was split up because the actual shop was in one place on the street in New York. The basement of the antique store, we had to build as a set in this warehouse in Yonkers. And then the upstairs, which is Hobie's private apartments, like, was a small townhouse in Bedford-Stuyvesant. So it was a real mix of things to get the right look of the, you know, the overall composite place, you know. So for the scenes in Amsterdam, now he's an adult and he's in a very different place in his life. Would you elaborate on the feel that you wanted to create for those hotel scenes? Most important, the time passing, really, because you had to get across that he was struggling with himself for quite a long time, you know. And then he wakes up in the middle of the night and has this vision of his mother and, you know, but that's all interspersed, isn't it, between the beginning and the end of the 
story. And then at one point in the story, he goes to live in the hot desert of Nevada with his father, mm. which you said was Albuquerque, but again, very different look. Would you talk about your approach to that? Yeah, well, I mean, it seemed to make sense to go to Albuquerque because, well, frankly, in New Mexico, you get a good tax break. There's a good crew infrastructure there. And we wanted a kind of suburban look that is equally well in Albuquerque as it is in Las Vegas. You know, they're quite similar. It is a very particular part of Albuquerque. It's a new sort of expansion up to the, the west side, which looks right out into a sort of empty desert. And that was kind of perfect for us. So we scouted a, a number of houses there. And uh, John ended up liking the interior of one particular house and the exterior of another. And then we scouted around for Boris's house and found this fantastic place that looked out onto nothing with a swimming pool, a dry swimming pool in the back, uh, which was perfect for the, the scene with the two boys. The only thing we had to do to it, we behind the swimming pool, there's like a little garden and there's a wall and there's empty nothing into the, you know, just flat desert or whatever. And uh, the only thing he had to do, I asked him to take some of the trees. There was a couple of little apple trees or something in the garden. I said, well, here, let's remove those because it's even bleaker if you take them away. So it wasn't, wasn't much to do. That was really good. But I mean, it was really about finding the right location. I mean, it wasn't a huge budget film, so you, you couldn't do a lot. You know, we couldn't build a lot. It was often about finding the location that really fitted the story. But you really felt the uh, the bleakness, the heat, the isolation. Yeah, it was really important to for me that you know New York was kind of a soft light, kind of natural, kind of soft light thing. And then you go to Las Vegas, Albuquerque, where we were, and uh, I really wanted to shoot in hard light, and, and actually top sunlight was fine. I didn't want to shoot in you know low golden sun. There's one scene in low sunlight, but most of it deliberately in hot, high sun. The Museum of Modern Art was a set build, correct? Yeah, obviously exterior is the real thing, but yeah, we, we built a set, yeah. And then you had to have the, the bombing sequence. Would you talk about that shoot? Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, well, it was tricky, I suppose, but I, John, John was really keen on the aftermath of the bombing to be like this void. He just wanted a kind of complete emptiness of Theo's kind of getting up amongst the rubble. And he didn't, John didn't want to know where we were. He didn't want feel to know where he was just this sort of void and I'd done a few things like that not not you know on Jarhead and a bit on Blade Runner as well so it was kind of okay so the thing to do is like you just filled the warehouse with smoke basically just as thick as we could go I mean we couldn't get enough smoke really just kept pumping it in till you couldn't see anything because the problem was I mean the set is not huge because it wouldn't have looked real for the last scene in the film where they're walking around the real museum before it blows up. So you had to, we had to knock out the background with atmosphere, so it had to be really thick to take it out at that distance away, you know. Was it mostly practical effects in that scene? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all practical effects. It wasn't very nice, actually, but yes. <laughs> 
before the bomb, these are scenes when he's with his mother. He has a sense of safety. Would you describe how you lit the earlier scenes before the bombing? Well, it's the same, really. It's the same lighting. I just basically recreated the lighting that's at the real place, you know, with, uh, but I did use it with sky panels, you know, LED sky panels, so I could change the color, subtly change the color, but also control over, you know, they're basically big panels. I think they're about 90 sky panels in big blocks but that gave me the option to like have the far end of the block brighter than the near end so I could sort of grade the light in a way especially for the aftermath I needed to have stronger light at the back you know so the characters were slightly silhouetted against atmosphere that was kind of blown out you know so basically I had to do one lighting setup that suited both those situations really but I say just based on the real thing. What I didn't do, which they have at the Met, is the little spotlights on the paintings, which it always bugs me when I go to the Met because you've got a daylight source, or I don't know if it's tubes or daylight, I think it's tubes, but they're daylight. And then they've got these little tungsten spotlights on the paintings. And well, I mean, that's two different, vastly different colored light on a painting that you're supposed, I don't understand that. It's like really cheesy. But anyway, so I didn't do that. I just used this big overhead soft light. For you, what scene was the most challenging creatively? And would you describe why? The challenging thing, I think, creatively is actually not, is not a scene-to-scene thing. It's more the overall kind of texture of the film. That you, you, you know, you're shooting scenes that butt together, but they're, more, they're weeks apart in the schedule. And you've got to get a continuity and a, feel, a flow to it, a visual sort of flow. Um, so it feels like you're watching the same film and then you go from you know in this case city to city and you kind of want to bring the changes but you still want to be at the same movie you don't want it to sort of jump so I think it's successful in that way that the the whole thing seems to hang together visually and emotionally as as one piece you know I think that's the challenge individual scenes you know I mean obviously you're doing the two kids, you know, take acid or whatever it is on the swings and when they're outside Vegas, you know, and the dust comes down and they stagger back to the apartment or the house, you know. I mean, that's kind of a challenge because you don't have much time to do those kind of dusk dust shots, you know. You maybe get one evening to do it in the schedule, otherwise you don't know where you're going to do it. You know what I mean? It's not like a huge production. So... It's kind of, yeah, we got that. And that's a bit of a high when you get something like that. But, um, you know, that's just a logistics thing, really. Was there a technical challenge that was more pronounced than the others? Uh, actually, the hardest challenge was shooting the exterior of the Met on a Sunday morning. Oh, no. And <laughs> um, we go there. Yeah, you can only shoot there up till like, I think it's like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Maybe it's 10 o'clock, but it's no later than that. So you get there in the morning when it's dark and you set everything up. You set your ambulances up and all the people and the rain, rain towers and all this. And then you realize there's not a cloud in the sky and it's meant to be a rainy day. So then you figure, well, we've got to shoot this before like 8, 8.15, before the sun comes over those buildings on whatever it is, Fifth Avenue or whatever it is. And yeah, that's the biggest technical challenge because you go there... Uh, John, we could be in trouble here with the sun. We've got to do this real quick. 
And, but that's hard because it's really got to feel right. And you've got Oaks is kind of coming out and he's got to be all the extras have got covered in dust and look like they've just been bombed. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do in a few hours. So I think it was quite successful given that kind of pressure, you know what I mean? What time of year were you shooting in New York? Um, that must have been in March, I think. You know, so there wasn't a lot of daylight. We couldn't start that early. I remember it didn't really get light till, I don't know, half six or seven. So we didn't have a lot of time to shoot those shots. And it was not so much shooting the shots as setting all the background and getting the action right and getting the feel of that one little moment. It's not many shots in the film, but it's a very important little moment, you know. And you shot this with an Alexa. Would you discuss your lens choices? Just normal. I mean, the only thing we did differently on it was we did some very shallow depth of field shots for the pre-explosion so that because these things would John wanted to use interspersed within the film in different places you know just Theo's memory of that moment when his mother left him and the explosion and obviously we couldn't and we didn't want to do a kind of big you know effects thing you know it's not a Marvel comic movie so we wanted to kind of concentrate on Theo's perception, a memory of that moment and those little details, you know, the mother's hand leaving his shoulder and the mother walking off into, out of focus and stuff like that. So we, we did quite a lot of tests on that and shot that a really, really shallow depth of field. So we had this slightly, you know, this very rapidly out of focus image, you know. I mean, it wasn't any different lens choice, really. It was just a matter of shooting really wide open and and sometimes pulling focus forward when you would naturally f drop focus back. So when the mother walks away, we would actually pull focus forward so she was going more out of focus rather than coming, you know what I mean? But I mean, we never really went longer than the 65 on that. I didn't, it wasn't something that I wanted to do on long lenses. I mean, I was basically shooting in that sort of mid range, you know, 32, 35, 40, 50, that. It's quite a straightforward film, you know, photographically. It's really about each little scene. It's the little things that are important. It's such a personal story and so intimate and so much about this one character. Uh, so things about his face and about his point of view. And as I say, it's, it's those little details. It's like little things we did like in, in the house in Las Vegas as a kid, he's curled up on the floor. And later you go to the hotel room in Amsterdam, and this is James's idea. Uh, Theo's curled up, there's an adult, he's curled up in the on the floor in the same way. It's that kind of little moments of torment that kind of I thought were quite magical. And that's what it was about, more than the sort of larger kind of challenges. It was about the, just those little things, the little details, you know. Would you tell us about working with the actors? Well, the other thing, I mean, it was a great cast. I mean, it's a totally wonderful cast to work with, um, especially Oakes. You know, I mean, I don't think I've ever worked with an actor who's so focused on the character and had such an understanding of what his character was going through. It was kind of amazing. I mean, I would listen to his conversations with John about 
why he was doing something in a certain way. It was really interesting. He really thought about it and he really was that character. It was really great. Yeah, it's brilliant. And then it was interesting to see Ansel take what Oakes was doing and both swap their little mannerisms to try and integrate the character from one age to another. That was really interesting. You know, I said the sort of subtle things they were doing, all the actors, yeah, that's what makes a film like that so special, you know, just the, the details of the characterizations, you know. So I say it's, it's for me photographically, I was partly why I operate. I mean, I just love being there watching those little things happen. Actors do these, these subtle little expressions or little, the little moments they do to explore their characters. It's really interesting. We also know that The Irishman is coming up where they're actually going to have the same actor but using de-aging techniques. Do you think that's something that will start to be used more frequently in Hollywood? Um, look, it's been happening for years. You know, I work in animation. I still work in a bit on animation. I'm sort of consulting a bit on a film at Sony at the moment called Viva. And the two disciplines I've said to you before, they're, they're, they're getting more and more combined, aren't they? So you watch... You know, whatever, The Lion King or, or, or Jungle Book or whatever, it's uh, all these. But there's something that's still special about doing it in camera. So, yeah, there's certain circumstances where you need to make somebody look young or older. And yeah, the digital technology is great for being able to do that. But I think to st- it depends on the balance of it. How much do you use it? It's like, how much do you put in a totally CG background. I mean, I think it's death, personally. You know, that's why on Blade Runner and the last film I just worked on, most of the world is real. That CG is is the background, it's way deep in the background, or it's very certain elements that you couldn't do any other way, or wide flying shots of the city you couldn't do, obviously live, but even then, we tried to do as much as possible on Blade Runner Live, you know, and I think it makes a difference, but maybe I'm old-fashioned, I don't know. I mean, Connie always used to talk about happy accidents, but it is, it's that unknown, that untangible thing. It's like the difference between shooting on a real location and shooting on a set. I mean, for all your kind of talent and ability, I couldn't like what I'm looking at now that window, the way the sunlight's kicking off the floor and bouncing through here. and I mean, you just can't do it on a set. You can't get that level of detail and naturalism, that complexity of what the light's doing. Yeah, you can get close, you can get close enough, an audience isn't going to think about it, probably. But it's still not the same. The other thing where it's really telling, I think, is the actor's position in it. And it's all about the actors. It's not about me and the camera and the frame and the lighting. And that's all just something else if you haven't got the actor and you don't believe the actor if you don't believe Oakes is Theo you haven't got a film and that's why it's so brilliant because you really believe this kid is that character it's fantastic and if he was acting in a blue screen and you put in Las Vegas as a CG background would he be the same I don't think he would because I don't think he'd be relating to his environment you know and that's the problem with so many you know (laughs) I better not get specific, but supposedly big movies where they do so much as a CG environment, you don't feel the character relating to that background. There's some mismatch there. It's just not the same. You mentioned happy accidents. Is there a happy accident that comes to mind from Goldfinch? 
No, only that I'm really lucky with the weather. I'm always so lucky with the weather. I mean, the last film I did, I needed cloud for like three months and we got it just about every day. I mean, I'm so lucky. Um, no, just those um, scenes in uh, Albuquerque for Las Vegas to get the clear skies at the twilight. And, you know, you don't always get that. But yeah, I'm just very lucky with the weather, really. Would you like to give a shout out to your crew? Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, well, the thing is, you know, you work on a film like that. It's like very small locations. You're going from place to place quite quickly. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you know, move all your gear equipment in up a few floors, get in, set up and then get out and go somewhere the next day. So it's really tough for a crew. And I, and I, I mean, I was working with people I worked with for years, apart from Steve Ramsey, who was the gaffer who I hadn't worked with before. It was really quite brilliant. Well, Mitch Lillian I've worked with since Fargo. I've done just about every film I've done in America with Mitch. Um, he's just, you know, he's the best. So that was the first film I had I'd done actually without my regular dolly grip because he's retired, which was quite a blow. Bruce Hammy, which you probably met. You met Bruce, I think, yeah. Well, he retired after they did uh, Coen Brothers' movie. And uh, so I was working with a new dolly grip, Rick Maracombe, who I've worked with millions of times before, but he was brilliant. And um, obviously, Andy Harris, I've worked with since Fargo. So that's quite a long time. That was my first assistant. Uh, Connie Chung was my second. She's pretty brilliant. Great. Yeah, no, it was a great crew. And then you again worked with E-Film? On your workflow? E-Film, yeah. Josh Golish is my DIT. E-Film did the um, dailies, yeah. This is a year when the American Society of Cinematographers is celebrating their centennial, and I know there's been a lot of talk about, uh, you know, discussions about which cinematographers have influenced each of you over the years. Who have been some of your influences? Um, well, Conrad Hall is American, for sure. Ozzy Morris, Keizu Miyagawa. Vadim Yusuf. I mean, I don't know. You mentioned that there's millions. Raoul Kuchard. I, I don't know. There's millions. But of uh, the American cinematographers, I think Connie Hall and Haskell and uh, Phil Mars, all those guys. But, but Connie, I got to know quite well. And I think he was the biggest influence because I remember watching Fat City, which was like, I think, 1975. I remember watching that in Torquay in South Devon on a rainy winter's day. Totally empty cinema, apart from a couple of people that were in there because I think they were homeless. And just being blown away. I mean, I knew his work, but I hadn't seen that film. I'd just been blown away. And then that many years later to be, you know, having dinner with Conrad and just chewing the fat about filmmaking was just like, wow, it's great. He was the greatest influence on me, really. And what do you think of the work that's coming out of Hollywood today and your, your cinematography community? I think the cinematography is like, you know, worldwide, it's pretty stunning. It's pretty amazing what people are doing. Uh, it's just a pity some of the films have been made are not up to it, frankly. Um, that's why it's such a pleasure to work on something like Goldfinch. I mean, even if I hadn't worked on it, I'd have been glad it was being made because there's so few you know, dramas being made with interesting stories that actually have something to say and emotionally are engaging. And uh, so you say, even if I hadn't worked on it, it would have been, I would have been pleased that Goldfinch would have been made, but actually to have been able to work on it as well was like, it's pretty great. I've been very lucky. It's a beautiful film. Congratulations. Thanks, thanks, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.